You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's reading is from Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Uh, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this day, uh, we ask that you would uh, teach us about what genuine love looks like in our church family. Uh, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Uh, well, we live in a culture that, that is really quite obsessed with finding love. I think you see it in the songs we sing, you know, for, from classics of the past, at least a classic in my mind, Signed, Sealed, Delivered by Stevie Wonder, uh, to more recent hits like the, the quarantine special Stuck With You by Ariana Grande and the Bieber, Justin Bieber. Well, yeah, our songs tell us that, that we're desperate to find love. You see it in our TV shows too. I know many of you are fans of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or maybe it's Farmer Wants a Wife that tickles your fancy or maybe it's other quality shows like Love Island or Love is Blind. Well, we live in a culture that's really quite obsessed, desperate about uh, with finding love, finding real love, true love, finding genuine love. But what does genuine love look like? Well, in today's passage, Paul answers that question by describing what genuine love looks like in the church. Well, it's not romantic love. Uh, it's a deeply connected family of love. Uh, so first, let's look at verse 9, where, where Paul really gives us the basic summary of this passage, well, what I've called the essence of genuine love. In fact, before we get to verse 9, let, let's just remember verse 1. Take a look back at verse 1, where Paul says there, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Right, so we've got to remember that Paul's writing this passage to Christians, right? To the people who've personally experienced God's love and grace and mercy through faith in Christ. And that's important because Paul's message in this passage is not, hey, you guys better do a, a really good job of loving one another like this, or God won't love you and accept you. 
Well, that's not Paul's message. His message is God already loves you and accepts you because of your faith in Christ. Uh, so now you're, you're to be compelled by your experience of God's love to live lives of genuine love. Right, I say genuine love, but because take a look at verse 9. Paul says there in verse 9, love must be sincere. Now, that word sincere that literally means without hypocrisy. So, so Paul's saying our love for one another shouldn't just be one big facade, right? Because by the, the power of God's spirit, by God's grace, it should be sincere. It, it should be genuine. Oh, what does that genuine love look like? Well, Paul gives his summary answer in the rest of the verse. So take a look at the rest of the verse. Uh, Paul says genuine love is expressed kind of negatively in hating what is evil. Right here, in hating the reality or even the thought of doing what is evil in God's eyes. Uh, but positively, it's expressed in clinging to what is good, right? In holding tightly to, to doing what is good in God's eyes. Well, we, say this, we see this same emphasis on doing good, not evil, at the end of the passage. Take a look at verse 21. Paul says there, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it seems clear that, that genuine love is expressed in doing what is good, not evil. What's also clear in this passage is that it's really impossible to, to draw a sharp line between our genuine love for one another and our love for those around us. Right, so, so Paul kind of moves between those two aspects of our love throughout this passage. In verses 10 to 13 and verses 15 and 16, it's primarily about our love for one another. Uh, but in verse 14 and verses 17 to 21, though those verses are primarily about our love for those around us. The point being that if we're living lives of genuine love for one another, that love is going to overflow to those around us. So I hope you can see from this kind of brief survey of the passage that a reasonable summary of the passage is God's love should compel us to live lives of genuine love for one another that overflow to those around us, expressed in doing good, not evil. That's my summary of the passage. God's love should compel us to live lives of genuine love for one another that overflow to those around us, expressed in doing good, not evil. So what would it look like for us as a church family to live these lives of genuine love for one another? In the rest of the passage, Paul says at least seven things in answer to that question. First, in verses 10 and 11, he says a family full of this genuine love is a diverse family that's devoted to loving, honouring and serving one another. Look at verse 10. Paul says, be devoted to one another in love, or more literally, in brotherly love. But right? the word in love there is the Greek word Philadelphia, right? the city of brotherly love. The point being that Paul's writing to people who, because of God's amazing love, have been adopted into his family as his children. We saw that in Romans chapter 8, right? they're brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's saying to them, oh, I know you're all different people from different backgrounds. Right? People who, apart from your faith in Christ, might not have ever spent any time together. But despite that diversity, now you're called to love one another like family. 
I love with warmth, with affection, with devotion. And if you look at these verses, Paul's saying that sort of devotion means honouring one another above yourselves. Or maybe a better translation would be outdo one another in showing honour. To honour someone means, means to treat them as valuable, as weighty, as really significant. Oh, I don't think that's something we're very good at in Australian culture, is it? You know, sarcastic comments that kind of cut people down come naturally to us, but, but well, not so much honouring people. But Paul says in the church, things should be different. In the church, there should be this kind of godly competition, as it were, to outdo one another in honouring others, privately and publicly, recognising the precious value of others. Oh, it wouldn't be wonderful if we did that more. In verse 11, Paul follows it up by saying, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. So in all our kind of loving and honouring of one another, uh, we're to never be lacking in zeal, right? In enthusiasm, in eagerness. And of course, Paul acknowledges that we'll only be able to do that if we keep up our spiritual fervour. Right? The picture being that, the, um, excuse me, uh, the, the picture being that, that uh, through reading God's word and, and praying and meeting with God's people, uh, well, we've really got to keep stoking the fires of our personal spiritual life. I've got to keep our further up, because you can't give what you don't have. And notice that Paul finishes verse 11 by saying, serving the Lord. He's saying we give practical expression of our devoted service of our Lord by being devoted in our service of his people. So we're to be a diverse family that's devoted to loving, serving and honouring one another. Second, uh, we're a suffering family that's joyfully enduring and waiting with one another. Look at, look at verse 12. Uh, Paul says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. You might remember that back in Romans 8, Paul made it clear that this family we've been adopted into is going to be afflicted with all sorts of suffering. Right? Sometimes the weight of that suffering is going to be so heavy that we, that we groan under the burden. But here Paul says that even in the midst of that sort of suffering, we can be joyful in hope. Why? But Because we know that, that no suffering we can experience can ever separate us from God's love for us in Christ. That, that's the end of Romans 8. And we know that the one day we're going to go and be with Christ in a world that is completely free from suffering. So that future hope means that in the meantime we can be patient, where we can persevere in trusting Jesus. We can endure together despite our suffering. Of course, Paul knows that we're only going to be able to maintain this joyful hope and patient endurance if we're faithful in prayer. In particular, crying out together, come Lord Jesus. I come back, Jesus, please, and rescue us from this world of suffering. We're a suffering family who joyfully endures and waits with one another. And we're a needy family who welcomes and shares with one another. Look at verse 13. Paul says, 
Uh, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. In our culture, typically the weakest and most needy people get left behind. You know, it's kind of survival of the fittest. If you can't keep up, you just got to get out of the way, right? But once again, the church should be different, right? Because the Christian life starts and continues by admitting that you're a person of immense spiritual need, right? You come to Jesus poor in spirit, right? Absolutely nothing to offer. Uh, that's to say nothing of all our physical and emotional and, uh, and practical needs, right? Our church is full of needs. And Paul says in response to those needs, uh, well, we should share with the Lord's people. Literally, we should share with the holy ones. The holy ones. So you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, sure, in the church, there might be lots of needs around you. Sometimes you're frustrated by those needy people. But you've got to remember that those people are the holy ones of the Lord. They're precious to you. And so we should always seek to move towards people in their need and meet their needs, rather than avoiding people in their needs and being frustrated at their needs. And Paul says part of meeting their needs is often practising hospitality. Or more literally, pursuing hospitality, right? It's actually the, the same word uh, that's translated as persecute in verse 14. Paul's point is that, that we're not just kind of passively sit back or waiting for, for those with needs to fall in our lap. No, 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 we're to actively pursue opportunities to, to welcome people into our lives and meet their needs. You might say, well, but I'm the person who's got all the needs, you know, I came to church to find some people who'd help meet my needs. But you see the point here? The point is that we've all got needs. We're all broken and weak in different ways. And if we genuinely love one another, we'll be a family that's welcoming and sharing with one another to meet those needs. A fourth, sometimes we're a persecuted family. And in those uh, situations, uh, we're to be eager to bless those who persecute us. Look at verse 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Most of us probably have a natural instinct to curse those who curse us. You know, they hurt me, so I'll hurt them. Right, but, but where are people who, who, by faith in Christ, have been united with Christ? Right, united with the one who, in Luke chapter six, taught us to love our enemies, to, to do to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who mistreat us. But right, we're united with the one who, who, from the cross, literally prayed for those who were crucifying, uh, crucifying him, saying, "Father, forgive them." But the reality is that most people do a pretty good job of loving those who treat them well. well that's nothing, there's nothing special about it. That, that comes naturally to us. But by God's grace, by the power of his spirit, we're called to bless not just those who bless us, who treat us well, but also those who curse us. Those who are actively trying to harm us and the cause of the gospel. I mention this because I know that in the midst of COVID, 
Uh, some Christians have really felt that, that Daniel Andrews and his government have been unduly restricting the church in comparison to other segments of society. Right? And in their own ways, I reckon their response has been to curse Daniel Andrews. Right? If they pray for him at all, it's just to pray that he'd fail and be removed from government. But if that's you, I hope you hear the call of this passage to pray for and love and bless even those you think are persecuting you. Well, that's not to say that you can never speak out against injustice. Well, you absolutely can. But that speaking out should be in the context of seeking the person's good. Well, in verse 15, we see that we're to be a deeply connected family who shares in one another's joys and sorrows. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. When I was on annual leave, I spent a fair bit of time watching my Boston Celtics play in the NBA playoffs. And one day when I was watching a game, Ada came in and she said to me, Dad, why is it that you yell so much when you're watching basketball? a pretty good question, right? I said, oh, look, it's probably because I care too much about whether my team wins. You know, when Boston wins, I'm full of joy. Uh, and when Boston loses, I'm full of sorrow. Or at least, or at least I'm a bit grumpy, you know? Now, that's a bit of a trivial example. Right? But, but uh, of course, to some extent, that, that's just what happens when you feel deeply connected with the team. Right, the successes and failures of other members of the team but become your successes and failures. Right, and Paul says that's what it should be like in the church. Right, well, we're so deeply connected with one another, our members of the very same body of Christ, uh, that we should share in one another's joys and sorrows. Now, of course, that's easier said than done. Like... Oh, I mean, sometimes we really are able to, to enter into the sorrow of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to mourn with those who mourn. But, but other times we might be tempted to think it to ourselves, well, uh, of course I feel sad for the brother, right? But, but to be honest, I'm glad it's just not, it's, I'm glad it wasn't me who lost my job, or lost, my, lost that relationship, or missed out on that opportunity. In our natural selves, it can be quite hard to mourn with those who mourn. It can be even harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. We can find ourselves saying to ourselves, well, sure, sure, I'm happy for them, right? But, but, but what about me, God? Wait, don't you know, God, that I also want a promotion, or I want to get married, or I want a new job, or I want to have kids, or I want to be able to buy my own house, or I want to be cured from my chronic health condition, right? Don't you know that, God? That's what one writer says. Our affections are naturally disordered, so that, it often, so that often we're relieved when others mourn, and self-pitying when others rejoice. Well, we've got to keep asking God by the power of his word and spirit to reorder our thoughts and feelings so that we can be this deeply connected community who shares in one another's joys and sorrows. And this need for a kind of reordered thinking comes up again in verse 16, right, where we see that we're to be a humble family in which every person is valued and treated equally. Take a look at verse 16. Paul says, live in harmony with one another, 
Do not be proud, but be willing to associate uh, with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It's a little hard to see in our translation, but actually this verse uh, is dominated by words to do with thinking. Right? Live in harmony with one another comes uh, from a, a Greek word which is usually translated as think or, or form an opinion. Right? Paul seems to be saying, uh, make sure you have the same opinion of one another or, or think the same towards one another. Uh, likewise, do, do not be proud is literally do not think too highly of yourself and do not be conceited is literally uh, don't think yourself to be wise. So I presumably be picking up on the person who thinks themselves wise in their own eyes. Right, but they're actually a fool. So Paul's really repeating that idea from back in verses 2 and 3. Right? The, idea, the need for our thinking to be renewed so that we see ourselves and one another accurately. Paul knows that if this diverse group of Christians in Rome, right, including both Jews and Gentiles, is going to live in harmony with one another, then they've got to remove pride from their church. Right? And that'll only happen as they are humbled by God's grace to them in the gospel. Right? Because in our sinful selves, all of us like to be associated with the people in the church of high position. You know, they're the important people, they're the, the influential people. We, we want to be in the in crowd. You've only got to watch the, the people flock to a guest speaker at the Christian conference to see that, don't you? Everyone's milling around them at morning tea. You know, they're, they're most, they've got their autograph books out, you know. And yet as we're changed by God's grace, we're called to associate with those whom the world would consider to be of low position. Right, the, the, the insignificant, the weak, the, the difficult, the, the, the particularly broken people. Last week, Paul urges to, to look at ourselves in accordance with the faith God has given us, right? our, our saving faith in the gospel. And of course, that faith tells us that every Christian is broken and sinful. Right? So, so we, we should never think too much of anyone. You know, favouring them, flocking to them, fawning over them like some kind of celebrity. But on the other hand, the gospel tells us that every Christian is deeply loved by God. We shouldn't think too little of anyone, avoiding them, despising them, looking down our nose at someone who is a precious child of God. We're to be a humble family in which every person is valued and treated equally. Finally, in verses 17 to 21, Paul says, we're a victorious family committed to overcoming evil with good. If you take a look at this section, I think it's pretty clear that it's bookended by this idea of good and evil. So in verse 17, Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And in verse 21, he says, do not, be, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now, of course, Paul, uh, now, of course, Paul knows uh, that uh, in our sinful selves, we do repay evil for evil. Right? That, that's what comes naturally to us. We retaliate and seek vengeance and want to make people pay. But Paul says we're not to do that. Right? Instead, uh, we're to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. 
But he ain't saying be careful there, but Paul's acknowledging that, that it's often quite complex to do what's right. But he's realistic about that. He's also realistic in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You might remember from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, remember Matthew 5 verse 9, and that as Jesus' people, we're called to be peacemakers, right? to, do, to be people who seek to forgive and be reconciled rather than hold on to grudges and seek vengeance. Right? But, but Paul knows that this side of heaven, some hurts are just so deep and some, some relationships are just so damaged that it's just not possible to live at peace. Still, he's urging us to, to do all we can to live at peace. And you might say, well, that just seems overly simplistic. How can I possibly live at peace with someone who's the cause of so much evil and injustice, not, not just in the world out there, but, but in my own life? That's a very good question. At least part of the answer is in verse 19, where Paul says we're, we're to leave room for God's wrath. His anger. Oh, I think often our, our radar for evil and injustice is on the money. We've got a pretty good sense of when someone's mistreated us or those we love. The problem is that our right feelings of anger and injustice usually get all mixed up with our own sinfulness. So we end up being overly harsh in our anger or even taking our anger out on the wrong people. So Paul says, you know, God's better placed to judge. Right? Leave room for his wrath. And likewise, in the rest of verse 19, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, where God says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Right? In our sinful selves, we often want to put ourselves in God's place. Right, thinking that the world would be a better place if, if we were in charge, right? if we were, were the judge and king over all. Uh, but God says, don't do that. Right? Don't put yourself on the judgment seat that rightly belongs to me. Right? One day God will judge. He'll set all things right and he will get it perfectly right. And now, of course, Paul's speaking, speaking primarily here about us not taking judgment into our own hands in our personal relationships. Right, next week, we'll see that there is a place for governing authorities to make judgments. Right, judgments that seek to restrain evil in society and promote good in society. Right, but, but for us personally, if we're not to, to repay evil for evil or, or seek vengeance, uh, what are we supposed to do instead? Oh, well, look at verse 20. Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Uh, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Uh, in many ways, this is a recap of verse 14. Right? Well, we're to seek to love and bless our enemies just as Christ did. Uh, Paul even tells us why we're supposed to do that. Right? Look, in doing this, he says, uh, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> It's a strange expression. It's hard to know exactly what Paul means by that, but, but uh, most likely it's a picture of kind of uh, of shaming someone or embarrassing them. 
Right, the idea being that we're to treat our enemies so well uh, that ultimately that they feel ashamed about how they've treated us and, and change their ways. Right, maybe they even become a Christian. Well, Paul wraps up his argument in verse 21. He says, do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we know from the end of Romans 8, well, you, you can read those verses later on, but we know from those verses that evil can't overcome us as Christians by, by harming us or persecuting us or even by killing us. Because nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. Right? In fact, in Christ, Paul says, we're the ones who overcome. Well, we will be victorious. We will be more than conquerors, Paul says, in Christ Jesus. Right, the only way evil can overcome us is if we try to use evil to defeat evil. Uh, another thing I did on my annual leave uh, was reread the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, I really like the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and so as I was reflecting on these verses, I, I was reminded of the character Boromir in the Lord of the Rings. Right, but because Boromir thought that he could use the evil ring of power to overcome the evil power of Sauron. But he couldn't. The evil power of Sauron could only be overcome by Frodo and Sam's commitment to doing good. And that's what we see in Christianity, don't we? And we see that it was the one who didn't retaliate when he was insulted, who didn't threaten when he suffered, who instead, as 1 Peter 2 verse 23 says, entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Right? He left room for God's wrath. We see that it was him who overcame evil with good. Right? That's love, isn't it? Sincere love. Genuine love. Of the love that should compel us to live these lives of genuine love for one another that overflow to those around us, expressed in doing good, not evil. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for this, your word. Oh, we thank you for your amazing love to us in Christ. Uh, and we pray, Father, that uh, our experience of your love would compel us to live these lives of genuine love for one another, uh, that that love would overflow to those around us, uh, and that we would be committed uh, to doing good, not evil. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.